Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. All right, so today we're going to continue talking about the blood covenant. And I want to ask you, have you ever heard the term deconstructionism? We've got a few hands. So deconstructionism is is a popular buzzword. Basically what it means is you take something, in this case it would be Christianity, and you take it apart piece by piece, you look at it to ensure that every part is needed and right, and then you put it back together again. The concept of deconstructionism is, is not a bad thing. It is good for us to look at what we know and what we understand, pull pull things out and say, okay, what does the Bible say about this? However, it has become a popular thing for people to pull the scripture out and then discard portions of it based not on what the scripture says, but what society is saying or what someone else has said about it. And you find that many people under the name of deconstructionism are going into Christianity and pulling out some of the key ingredients such as the blood atonement. So the blood covenant, atonement, the existence of of hell and internal punishment, salvation, and the inerrancy of scriptures are some of the things that have become popular to exclude. And I try to, to, to think of it... Uh, do we have any people who are like into cars? Okay, so if you take a car apart, you can, pull it, you can pull it apart, you can look at it. If you put it back together and decide not to include the ashtray, are you okay? That's fine. And, and, and with Christianity, there are things that when we pull that apart, we start to realize, you know what? That isn't something that was taught by Scripture. That's a tradition that, that came along. And do I need to include that as, as I go forward? Well, not necessarily, because it wasn't a part of, of what made Christianity function. It's not from Scripture. It's from tradition. So if I wanted to, to include that, I could. But if I take the car apart and I decide I don't want the alternator... Now, the alternator, for those of you who are not mechanically inclined, is what charges your battery. When your motor is running, the alternator is constantly charging the battery. If you put the car back together with a fully charged battery and no alternator, it will work for a little while until the alternator, uh, you know, the lack of an alternator means that your battery runs dead and all of your electronics will stop working. You won't be able to start your car um, once you turn it off you'll have issues. The interesting thing is you won't see them immediately. And for a lot of people, that is what they have done with Christianity. Without having regular teaching and scriptural understanding of the blood covenant or atonement, they don't understand why it's there. And so when they look at Christianity, they're quick to throw that part out. It doesn't look necessary to me. And well-intentioned people, I would say, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And what they're left with is a pursuit of social justice, which isn't bad to pursue charitable acts and to do social justice, but that is not how you get right with God. We have to understand that. When you pull the atonement, when you pull the blood covenant out of, of Christianity... There is, there is a famous, um, how do I put it? I don't know. Christian, he was a pastor, um, and he, he was very influential. Um, he famously said this. He is now way off the deep end, absolutely um, heretical. But when he began, he started by saying, we need to question it all, including salvation. And he said this, he said, Christianity isn't a brick wall of beliefs that that depend on each other. Christianity is like a trampoline. Each spring represents a separate belief. I don't care which one you pull out, you can still jump on the trampoline. As long as the experience of loving others as you would love yourself, an experience of treating people the way Jesus recommended we treat people is all the same, who cares which belief we keep and which one we throw out? 
I want you to understand how dangerous that concept is. Because Christianity isn't a trampoline. There are bases to what we believe. And the blood covenant and the atonement are a part of that. We go back to the very, very beginning. Adam and Eve learned that death was the price for sin. Genesis 2, 17 says, If you eat, you will surely die. Now, the first siblings mentioned in the Bible, anywhere, it's Cain and Abel. Let's look at verse, chapter 4, verse 3 and five, through 5. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought some fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the first of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain, his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. First people born, first murder, we know, was Cain and Abel. What was it about? Where did the, where did the frustration come from? The Bible says that Abel brought a blood sacrifice. Cain, on the other hand, took a look, he's our first deconstructionist, and said, I don't see why it needs to be an animal. I'll just bring some vegetables. That's what I do. This is me and what I do. I'm going to bring that instead. And he brought an offering of his good works, his activities. And he said, okay, God, take this. And God said, no, that's not what is needed. See, from the very beginning, the Bible has said, in, well, let me see, where did I jump to? The Bible says in Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So we understand it was all the way back. That's not just, we're going to talk about the covenant God made with Abraham, but the blood covenant, the, the the necessity of blood to cover sin goes all the way back to the very first sin. Abel and Cain were already taught by God the need for blood sacrifice. We, look, we think of that today as just weird and gross, but that's because we understand Jesus was our blood sacrifice and no further sacrifice is needed. But that is foundational. So I want to remind you guys that this isn't new, this isn't a fringe part of Christianity, literally the reason Jesus came is because since the very beginning, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Cain and Abel. Cain tried to get right standing with God without blood. Well, what if I do it my way? I'm a farmer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if onions and tomatoes will do. Ketchup <laughs> instead of blood. And God said, no. So we're going to look at the covenant with Abraham. The Bible says four different times. It says it in Genesis 15, 6. It says it in Romans 4, 3. It says it in Galatians 3, 6 and James 2, 23. It says, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. I'm going to read James 2.23 in the Passion Translation. It says, So in this way the scripture was fulfilled. Because Abraham believed God, his faith was exchanged for God's righteousness. Abraham believed something, and that belief was exchanged for God's righteousness. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him right. What did Abraham believe? Right? 
if, if what he believed was credited to him as righteousness, then it's important for us to learn and understand what did Abraham believe. Genesis 15.1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. A few verses later, in verse 9, Abraham says, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? All the blessing and the the stuff that, that God was talking about. So God answered him and said, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all of these to him, and he cut them in two. Now, last week, we talked about what a blood covenant looked like, the norm in, in culture there. They would separate the animals. So as soon as God did this, Abraham recognized what was happening. He says, he cut it in two and placed each piece opposite each other. And he did not cut the birds in two. And then when the vultures came down the carcass, Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, horror and great darkness fell. And then upon him, and he said to Abraham, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and they will serve and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nations whom they serve, I will judge after they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared remember this, a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Remember, we talked yesterday, let me say yesterday, (laughs) like the whole week didn't happen. Last week, Sunday, we talked about how part of the covenant was to pass between those. But Abraham, instead of going through it, he's seeing this burning torch pass around on the same day that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Peptilites, and the Mosquito Bites. All of these people. And he said, I've made a covenant with you. Now, God started. We're going to go back and, and... I know it's been a week, but we're going to compare what happened to Abraham with what we said was the norm for a covenant. It says, God started with a gift of himself. God initiated by offering the robe of his person and his holiness. God says, I don't offer you a shield. I will be your shield. Now, Abraham knows that he's not worthy. If he was wondering, all he had to do was ask his wife, who he tried to pass off as his sister to protect himself two different times. And when they were cut in two, Abraham recognized the covenant. And then it says that Abraham tried to to scare off the birds, the vultures. Matthew 13, 14 in the parable of the sower tells us that the birds represent Satan coming to steal the word. God says, you can't do this on your own. And so he, knowing that Abraham would mess it up, he put Abraham to sleep. And then God swears by himself, it says. And then Abraham saw something else walking between the animals where he normally would have walked. Matthew 17, 2 says, Christ is said to be clothed in raiment as white light. Revelations 1.14 says his eyes are like a flame of fire in his feet as if there was word burned in a furnace. Nearly all Bible scholars agree that Jesus was the burning torch that came and stood in Abraham's place in, in making the covenant with God. We talked before about how a scar is part of of the the covenant process. Their scar would bear witness to the covenant. It would always remind God and Abraham of their covenant responsibilities to each other. And it was the guarantee of the covenant. In Abraham's case, that scar was circumcision. The changing of names, we talked about that being part. The Bible says that Abram became Abraham. 
And God became known as the God of Abraham. You realize even God's name, what he was called, changed that at that time. Abraham didn't have a son. But Abraham was to believe that God would bring him a son, even in his own age, old age. And then God delivers miraculously. Abraham slept through the ceremony, but he proves his commitment to the covenant in a full exchange of what's his. Remember that the covenant is a full exchange of ownership. It's not just an intellectual understanding. So when he gave Isaac, or was prepared to give Isaac, to his culture, someone with only one child, giving his only child, was giving up his entire life. It was a common thing in that day for pagan religions to require the sacrifice of the firstborn. Was Abraham as committed? We know that this isn't what God wanted of him. But God did test his level of commitment. Now let's look at that story in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. It says, when you get there, this is God speaking to Abraham. He says, I will point out a mountain for you to offer him on. One of the questions is, what was Abraham thinking? The Bible tells us a little bit later In Romans 4.20, it says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave God glory. It was talking about Abraham in that point. The Bible says that Abraham didn't know what was going to happen, but he stayed true in his faith and his confidence that God would fulfill his promises. What was God's promise? God's promise was, I will make you the father of many nations through this child. And then God says, go sacrifice him. And Abraham's like... I know that somehow what he's telling me is true. The Bible says it was a three-day journey, and we, we, we know that in his mind, Isaac was as good as dead. He knew what he was doing. He travels to Salem. Salem was later called Jerusalem, Jerusalem, so the same place. And God shows him Mount Moriah. Now, this is, this is interesting and significant because the mountain where Jesus was sacrificed was right outside of Jerusalem. So Abraham traveled three days to reach the very place where Jesus would be. In Genesis 22.5, he tells His servants, stay here with the donkeys. The lad and I will travel yonder and worship and then come right back. I like the way it translates in Spanish because the come back includes who is coming back. Regresaremos. One word means I will come back, regresaré. The other word, regresaremos, means we will come back. Abraham, the Bible says, believed that his son would die. But he also believed that his son would come back. He leaves the servants. He puts the wood on Isaac's back. Isaac, at this point, is probably already a grown man. Probably around 30. I believe it's very likely that he was the same age as Jesus. Jewish maturity at that time was 30. Isaac didn't marry until 40. Genesis 22.7 says, Father, this is Isaac saying to him, Father, we have the wood and the flint to make the fire, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Verse 8. God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, I love the way that that plays out. Can we put that back up again? God will provide himself. In other words, he will provide. But it also, when we understand what's happened, he will provide himself. He will be the offering. 
What did Abraham know in advance? Hebrews 11 says, Abraham believed that even if God did take Isaac, he would resurrect him. Verse 19 of Hebrews 11 says, um, I think I only put it in Spanish here. But Abraham considered that God had the power to raise him from the dead. He was expecting something. Now we know Abraham builds the altar. He's about to sacrifice. And the angel stops him. And he says, look there in the thicket. And there's a ram caught in the thicket. One of, one of the most, one of my favorite teachings about this verse, and it's kind of a side trail because it's not the point I was trying to make this morning, but I'll still make it anyway, um, is the entire time Abraham did not know what was coming. As Abraham was climbing up the mountain, where was that ram? You know, the ram, I don't believe the ram was in the thicket for months. That ram was on the other side of the mountain doing ram things. But then God sent that ram on his way. And as Abraham was working his way towards where he would fulfill God's promise and and have that experience, the ram was on the way. And many times, we're wondering, what's going on? What's going to happen? How is God going to provide? We don't see how God is going to provide. But guess what? The ram is on the way. At the time when it is needed, God's provision will be there. Someone once said, God is never late, but he misses many opportunities to be early. The ram is on the way. What did he believe? We asked, what was it that Abraham believed? It says here, well, we'll look at it. He believed in a supernatural birth. He believed that God would supernaturally bring a son into the world. God did, and Abraham called him Isaac. He believed in God enough to offer his only son as a sacrifice. He believed for three days that his son was as good as dead. And he was. He believed God would provide a sacrifice and a substitute or raise his son from the dead with many children coming through him and his son Isaac, and God did. He believed that on that very mountain, God would provide himself a substitute for the sacrifice. That he would be seen on that very mountain. Abraham believed these things in his heart, and God gave Abraham his own robe of righteousness. Because of Abraham's faith, God was his shield, his protection. The righteousness of God was imputed or counted to Abraham on his behalf because he believed. John chapter 8, verse 56 says, This is Jesus speaking to the Jews. And he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus said that Abraham had seen Jesus' day and was glad to see it. Many people believe, the Bible says that, that Abraham lifted up his eyes. Where he was standing is, in all likelihood, the very place that Jesus would be sacrificed. God knew what he was doing. He was planning ahead. He was setting up a picture. Remember, the Old Testament is a picture and a glimpse. It is a glimpse. It is a type and a shadow pointing to what happens in the new. When Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son, he was in that same place. When Jesus said, Abraham saw my day, I believe that God gave him a glimpse. That he looked up and saw, this is what will happen in this place. Abraham, or Hebrews 11 says, Abraham believed that even if God didn't take Isaac, or did take Isaac, he would resurrect him to be the firstborn of the covenant. 
God believed that these things would happen. I just lost my spot here. There we go. Abraham, let's look at Romans 9, 8. It says, this confirms that it is not merely the natural offspring of Abraham who are considered the children of God. Rather, the children born because of God's promise are counted as descendants. So don't you hear this? What did Abraham believe? He believed in that covenant. He believed in what God had, would do in that spot for him. And then Romans 9, 8 says, that's not just for Abraham's natural descendants, but it's whoever believes in God's promise would be counted as descendants. Let's read that again. When we recognize what Abraham believed in applies to you and I. So I'm going to read this one more time. Romans 9, 8. This confirms that not merely the natural offspring of Abraham who are considered the children of God, rather the children born because of God's promise are counted as descendants. Galatians chapter 3, 6 through 9 says similarly. It says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that not only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles. Well, who are the Gentiles? That's everybody who isn't a direct descendant of Abraham. That's everybody else. The, the scripture foresaw that God would justify any of us. By faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. Abraham knew this. Beforehand saying, in you... All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Remember, nations then wasn't just countries, Canada, Mexico, Persia, Syria. No, it was people groups. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 says, For you all, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We participate in the covenant that God made with Abraham by believing in the sacrifice of his son. His Blood sacrifice pays for our sin. If we do not understand that, if we deconstruct Christianity and try to put it back together without the understanding that the blood of Jesus paid for my sin, it doesn't work. That's the fuel line. We reconstruct the automobile that is Christianity and we remove the blood covenant, there is no power. There is no fuel. It is, it is a foundational concept of God's interaction with us is the blood covenant, the blood atonement for sin. That is why all the way back to Cain and Abel, the very first two people born, they're already had an understanding of blood sacrifice. Because God was setting the table to, to, to explain how Jesus would be our sacrifice. The Old Testament is a picture. It tells us all the way coming forward. We're going to talk a little bit about the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 says, In the course of those days, many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned under their bondage and cried out for help. Their cry under bondage came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he rescues them. But they didn't know God or who they were in relationship with. With. 
Exodus 19.17 says, Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the base of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was smoking because the Lord came down up it in, a fi- in fire. Its smoke went up like smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked severely. Remember, <laughs> Moses describes God as Abraham did, a smoking furnace. Same thing. God gives them the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make uh, for yourself a carved image or any other likeness that is in heaven or above or the earth beneath. Three, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear fault witness against each other. Number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house nor covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything else that is your neighbor's. Now, was it God's intention that the Israelites would earn right standing with him by keeping that list? No. No, it wasn't. Psalms 50 verse 5 says, Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. See, right standing with God was always to be attained by sacrifice. God recognized we are not capable of being good enough, whether it's the Ten Commandments or all 463 Old Testament commandments. He gave other instructions as well. He gave the details on building the tabernacle for this elaborate system of sacrifices and ordaining a priesthood. When Jesus came, he didn't replace it, but he fulfilled it. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law was there to demonstrate to us our need for sacrifice, not to be the path by which we attain right standing with him. Exodus 27, 16 tells us that the, the, the uh, tabernacle was made with one gate. For John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Did we get the picture of the, um, the tabernacle from the notes? All right. If you have time, it's, it's an image in the notes. Um, there's one gate. So the picture of the tabernacle, big square, only one way in, one way out. First thing that you encounter when you come in is the brazen altar. In Exodus uh, 27, 1 through 8, it's described. And this is where the sacrifice is put. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your souls. Everyone had to believe by faith that their sin was transferred to the animal sacrifice and that that blood would cover the sin in their case, temporarily, until God himself would take it away with his blood. Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love as Christ also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Isaiah 64.6 reminds us that our righteousness, our right standing, our ability to do things is like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of God. Hebrews 9.22 says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Philippians 3.9 says, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness. What is my own righteousness? My own righteousness comes from my ability to do or not do whatever it is that I should do or not do. But that righteousness doesn't get me anywhere, which comes from the law. 
but which is through faith. The righteousness which is from God by faith. As they entered the tabernacle after the one entrance and the sacrifice was the brazen uh, laver. It was a wash basin made of polished brass, which at that time was basically as close to a, that was what they made mirrors out of. So it showed you how dirty you were, but it also cleaned you. The priest would consecrate, and they would clean their whole bodies at first, and then after that they would clean just their, their hands and feet. That's found in Leviticus 8, 6. But in John four thirteen, it says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give you will become in him a spring of water welling up to everlasting. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 through 7 says, It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the, the parallel between what Jesus says he did and what the Jews had been doing every time they would visit? They would go to the tabernacle, they would wash. He says, hey, I am washing you through the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Then inside the courtyard was a tent, and as you entered, it was called the holy place. John 10, verse 9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And the holy place was divided from the next space, which was called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Holy of Holies is where God's presence, physical presence, was. The Bible says it was between the wings of the two cherubim who were over there, and there was, guess what? Blood sprinkled over. And if this was, if this was the, the Ark of the Covenant, you had the angels that were facing each direction. God's presence was right there. And then below that was the lid of the ark. An ark is a box. That's literally what the word means, box. And so in that box were the Ten Commandments, the law, that nobody could fulfill perfectly. But between God's presence and the law was sprinkled the blood sacrifice. To protect, to demonstrate between God's presence and the, the broken law was the blood. Dividing the holy of holies was the veil. Inside the holy place, not the holy of holies, but inside the holy place was the candlestick. It was gold. It weighed 107 pounds of solid gold. And it was the only light in the room. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. John 9, 5 says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Then speaking to all of those who would receive him in Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. See, John 9, 5, it says, as long, get this, he said he's the light of the world, but he says, as long as I am in the world. When he left... He put his light in us. The showbread, the 12 loaves of, of bread and wine. The animal represented the person entering into covenant. Now the bread and the wine represents the body and blood of the sacrifice being offered to God. On the Sabbath, the priest would eat the bread and pour out the wine, symbolically feeding and receiving it unto themselves and those he represented the life of God. Do you realize that even communion to, to the, the disciples who grew up in a Jewish understanding, they understood the concept of bread and wine representing body and blood before Jesus had the first communion. This was already a part of 
the yearly and regular practice of the priests. They would eat the showbread and they would drink the wine each time. Jesus was saying, look, what I'm doing here is like what you've been doing all of this time. I want you to recognize one of the reasons that he had that was to make sure that his disciples could see the parallels between what had been happening in the Old Testament and what he was about to do. John 6, 51 says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the man, son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him At the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Isn't it funny we're talking about blood and goriness on Halloween? (laughs) As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. And this is the bread which has come down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, when we hear that, we're like, what in the world? But if you grew up in that culture where God had set up an example of what he was talking about, he had the tabernacle and the the priests were eating bread that represented the body of the sacrifice and drinking wine that represented the blood of the sacrifice. And they were doing all of that all along. And then he begins to to paint a picture using the same symbols that you grew up. It's all connected. It's all a part of God's plan. He explains in John 6, 63, it says, it is the spirit who gives life. The the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. There's the altar in the tabernacle. This is the altar of incense, which is prayer. Every morning the priest would put burning coals and incense and it would fill the room with fragrant clouds of smoke. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the priest would sprinkle blood from the sin offering on the horns of the altar before entering into the Holy of Holies. Psalms 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be set before you as an incense, the lifting up of my hands as evening sacrifice. Now, only the priests would enter on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies. Only once a year did anyone go in to the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, three and three-quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, two and a quarter feet high. The lid was called the mercy seat. Between the two cherubim is a light. They called it the Shekinah presence of God's glory. There's a church here in town. goes by the name of Shekinah because they're talking about God's presence. Inside the altar was Aaron's rod, to remind them that Hebrews had, that the Hebrews had rejected God's leadership. There was um, some manna that had been collected to remind them of God's provision, which, by the way, the Israelites had also rejected. And the Ten Commandments, which, of course, had been broken. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the blood sacrifice went on the mercy seat between the symbols of their failure and God's presence, turning his throne from one of justice to one of mercy. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 18 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. And having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death 
this enmity, conflict. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now realize how revolutionary this is. He just said, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. You and I have access to the Father. In the Old Testament, only the high priest had access to the Father once a year. And he had to be completely clean. If he had not already covered in his sin with the sacrifice, if he failed to do that right, the Bible says that he would drop dead. This was such a concern to them that they would tie a rope around his leg because nobody wanted to risk going to get him if he hadn't covered his sin with sacrifice. They'd just drag him out. But now we have access. Jesus, when he was talking to the woman at the well, he said, "She's well, we're going to start in verse 19. It says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and the Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. She says, when she meets him, she says the the, the age-old question, how do we get to God? Are we supposed to do it in this mountain or are we supposed to do it in Jerusalem? You guys say you got to reach God this way. So our people say you got to reach God this way. Which way is it? And Jesus says, you guys are both wrong. The hour is coming and now is. Because of his coming, he says that we will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that we will be able to come to God. Matthew 27, 49 through 51 says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is when he's on the cross and he is dying. And then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and rocks were split. When Jesus died on the cross, it was not just a symbol that happened there. God coordinated at the tabernacle And when Jesus died, he ripped the veil. What was the veil? The veil was this massive, thick, it was several inches thick, ripped it in two. Said that is what previously separated God's presence from everyone else. That is previously where only the high priest could go in once a year with fear and trembling. But when Jesus died, the Bible said, this is, remember, it's all a picture. It wasn't, it wasn't random, oh, let's just rip something. No, God knew. He said, I want people to understand what happened there affected what this was demonstrating. My presence is no longer kept in one place for only the priest to access once a year. No, the veil was torn top to bottom because all of us gained access. And only one sacrifice was necessary. Romans 6.10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. 1 John 1.7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him with one another, and with the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from how much sin? All sin. Romans 4.22 says, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. So now it is written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us, so not just him, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from 
the dead. 1 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 3.9, And he found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Romans 8.4, That righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, I'm going to close with Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. When we have the understanding that we've now established, the Bible is explaining it better than I could. So here we go. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. It says he's the tabernacle. We were just talking about that. That is not of this creation, not of the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The Bible says clearly Jesus was a picture of a better tabernacle. The Old Testament is picture after picture after picture to point us to what Jesus did and how it completed everything for us. I just, I'm excited. I hope you're excited. I want to make sure that we understand the basis of our right standing with God is not our works. It's not completing any list of things. Our right standing comes from his blood and our belief in it. Like Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness when you and I believe. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and confess with your mouth that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. What does saved mean? That means right with God, your sin no longer separating you from him. If you know that you've done that, I wanted you to raise your hand. Praise God. If you don't know, you can know. God made us with a desire to have a relationship with us, but he wants it to be a choice you make. He gives us that free will. And he says, please, Choose. Choose me. I have this gift for you. If you desire to have that forgiveness, to have your sins wiped clean by the blood, the Bible just says, confess. Just like that verse said. If you want to do that, every eye closed just for a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to raise your hand right now and we'll do it today, if that's you. If you're watching online and you would like to confess and make Jesus your Lord, let's do that together. We can all repeat with me. Say, dear God, I believe, I believe Jesus, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I accept the forgiveness that his blood achieves for me. I choose to make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If that's you, please let us know. We would love to get you a, a digital link to a, a booklet that gives you some more information on how to continue to walk out that Christian walk. Um.